0: All right, if you would, let's take the confession first of all this morning, and we are still in chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at two paragraphs together this morning. And they go together, um, and so we're going to take them um, as one, although they are two separate paragraphs, we're going to look at them um, as a, a pair this morning. We're going to deal this morning with the discipline in the church. Uh, The discipline in the church. Now you'll notice as we read, uh, the word discipline does not appear in paragraph 12 or paragraph 13. The actual word does not, but the principle does. So we're going to deal with that uh, this morning. So paragraph 12 uh, reads this way. As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity so to do, so all that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof, according to the rule of Christ. No church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. These two paragraphs deal with the extent or the expectation of church government. Uh, As we learned even all the way back in paragraph five of chapter 26, we learned uh, that there is an order, Uh, there's an order to everything. Um, we, if we go to a place of employment, you go to a place where there is order. Uh, we are accustomed to order. We're accustomed to uh, things being done properly. And so this is not a new principle or a new concept. However, the, one of the big differences in the church government concerns this area of what's referred to as church discipline or church discipline uh, by the local church. Now, we, we really do need to further explain what discipline is and understand why it's important, uh, why the confession writers believe this, and uh, we're going to be making uh, looking at a number of different scriptures this morning, but I want to give us a little bit of a background um, onto what we've been dealing with. Uh, as we've studied through this chapter, chapter 26, we, have, we realize, or at least I hope we realize, uh, that we're not just dealing, when we talk about the church, of another social club. We're not talking about something that is another place to belong. We're not talking about something that is just to kind of loosely meet together every once in a while, um, has some common things, has some similarities, has people with some common interest, uh, but rather we are talking about something that is more than that. Um, it is also not just a place we come. And again, I'm not lessening this in any way, shape or form, but it's not a place that we just come to uh, for the preaching of the word. Although the preaching of the word is to have the preeminent place, but that's not the only reason we come. Uh, we are part of a church. We're part of a body of believers and that a church is, is a local gathering, of course. And again, uh, local doesn't mean within a certain number of miles per se, but that local church is committed to teaching and preaching the entire counsel of God. Uh, not just portions of it, not just the parts that resonate positively with people, but rather we are to preach the entire counsel of God. So it's, it's if we preach the whole counsel and we teach the word, there is a natural order or a level of accountability that comes out of that. So accountability is part of what belonging to a local church is all about. Uh, now I know accountability can be a touchy subject with people, that um, I don't want to be accountable to anyone, I don't want to submit to anyone, I, I do my own thing, I'm, I'm my own Christian man or woman, I'm, I'm kind of that, I'm on an island type of Christianity. Uh, but you do know that God has created us uh, to be in fellowship with other believers. Um, He did not create you to be isolated. He did not create you to be on your own and to just have a relationship between you and Him. Uh, We are made to worship together. We are made to be in this community of believers, and that's really what's at the heart of church membership. Now, as we deal with membership, and we're dealing today specifically with an aspect of being part of a church, um, there is an accountability that is a mutual accountability. In other words, we are accountable to God first, uh, but we are also, in a sense, accountable to each other. And God has given the order, and God has given the command, uh, that the church does have a certain level, and again, I'm being very careful, uh, a certain level of authority or discipline over its members. Now, that is only as it is to bring people into to observe and obey the commands of God. In other words, I can't We can't, elders can't, pastors can't use that authority to exercise discipline in areas that they are not called to do so. In other words, there is a limit to where this authority can go. Uh, This is not absolute. Uh, This is not authority that has absolutely no boundaries and no restrictions on it. Uh, But there is an authority that comes with being a member of a church. Now, we understand that biblically, Uh, We are commanded to join ourselves to a church, uh, but we also, that's voluntary. Uh, You are not uh, forced here today against your will. Uh, You are here voluntarily. You chose to be here today. Uh, Nobody um, implicitly uh, or uh, forcibly uh, said, you're coming with me in many cases. Um, I would chuckle a little bit. I was forced as a child many times to go to church. Um, many, many times. So I guess there are certain uh, exceptions to that rule this morning that might apply. So maybe rephrase that. Maybe you were forced here against your will today, but praise God if somebody did, right? So if you were forced against your will, maybe this is a good thing. Um, so it's the authority um, in these churches that is given to admonish is part of discipline, um, also to censure, which means there is something to be called out, um, and ultimately, and sadly, and one step that a church never wants to get to is to expel, um, or the, uh, the reformers and the churches of old used to use the word excommunicate, um, to, to distance yourself from, to remove them from the assembly. Uh, Discipline is not meant to be something that is to be um, waived as something to be arrogant about or prideful. Uh, The church doesn't take this and say, you know, look, we have this authority over you and you must do such and such. Uh, No, it's this authority uh, which is to be part of the discipline of the local church. So really, paragraphs 12 and 13 have really one main idea. And the main idea is, is that it is the responsibility of submission to uh, the discipline of the local church. Okay, There's submission there. Again, another word people just don't like. People don't like accountability and they don't like submission. Those two words are difficult to handle uh, because they, they suggest that we are giving up something. We're giving up a right. We're giving up a freedom. That's why those two words But I would say to you that biblical submission is not the giving up of a right. It's not the giving up of a freedom. It is actually uh, a a, a biblical responsibility and a commandment that leads to a blessed life. Um, Submission is not negative. Submission is actually, biblically, if it's done biblically, it's the greatest blessing that it can bring in in the order in which it's being submitted to. Um, No matter what the world says, folks, no matter what they say about the church church, uh, you know, negates certain rights of certain people because they force them to submit. They're missing the point. Um, so, there's responsibility here, um, and as we're going to see, even in these paragraphs, it is the it makes it clear that the confession extends to church members, and it also extends to all church problems. In other words, there are problems in a church. Now, I know that we think that that's never going to be the case, that we're not going to have problems, but we are. Um, Every local church, uh, because you're dealing with people, is going to have problems. That is a guarantee. So let's look at paragraph 12 first. And again, we're going to take this in a little bit different of a fashion than what we do since we're normally do, since we're dealing with two paragraphs this morning. But you'll notice it says, as all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches, um, when and where they have opportunity so to do, or the opportunity to do so. So there's an assertion being made here that backs up, that that is from scripture, that is telling us that believers are bound to join a local church when and where they have opportunity. Now that's an important concept when and where they have opportunity. Now those opportunities, the when's and the where's, um, those are important uh, differentiations that are being made. Okay, When there is an opportunity. Now that opportunity can be based on a lot of different things. Okay, Opportunity doesn't mean that it's just open. Opportunity could mean there could be certain things going on in the life of that individual. There could be situations that are being dealt with. But when and where the opportunity presents itself is what the confession writers had in mind. So when you join a church, now I know we, we often say it this way, when we join a church, we're added to a quote-unquote membership role. But primarily, you're not joining to get your name on a roll. You're joining subjecting and submitting yourself to the discipline and the authority of that church. Um, That is why you will never hear me rush church membership. Now, I will tell you it's required, and I will tell you you should be a member of a church, but you need to understand that you're not just getting your name on a roll so that you can say, I belong to such and such. You're actually submitting yourself to the authority within the boundaries of scripture that that church has. And so that's what we're subjecting ourselves to. It's mutual accountability. Uh, even though I serve in the role of an elder pastor here, I am, I am on the membership role as well. And there is a mutual accountability between you and I and my family, we're mutually accountable to you. There is an accountability that is happening. So uh, we saw this, Now they're not just making a random statement. Paragraph five already clearly stated uh, that when you join a church, that you are joining um, in with the, uh, with the implicit understanding uh, that you are subjecting yourselves to that discipline. So what are you submitting to? The government of that church. To the extent that it calls us and leads us into following the commands of God. Over the years, churches have overextended their level of authority. They've overextended their scriptural boundaries to where they have gotten themselves into areas of individuals' lives that they should not have been in. Um, But when you submit yourself to a church, part of that is you are submitting to the authority. Now, the biblical support for the government of churches, or how we're to deal with members, is found in a number of different passages. Uh, Now, you'll see that there's two footnoted from this first paragraph. So it says, After they have opportunity to do so, so all that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof, according to the rule of Christ. So there's two uh, main passages that are mentioned here. I'm going to give you a couple others. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now, these are all passages that are in the context of dealing with individuals or dealing with the local church. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, Support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So there is an expectation of conduct. There is a right way to conduct yourself in a church, and there's a wrong way. Again, nobody argues with we conduct ourselves in a certain way in a work environment or a school environment. People say, well, yeah, I expect there's to be a certain level of order and a certain level of behavior, conduct, that matches what that is. Now, again, um, that order um, can be disturbed, but that order also tells us that there are certain times when we have to deal with things. Now, you'll notice that that word unruly in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, the literal meaning of that word is to be out of step with God. It means to be out of uh, what has been given as proper conduct uh, for a believer. Believe it or not, it's not legalistic to say we're supposed to act a certain way. There, There are responsibilities, now, I know the popular church today says, "Look, it's basically come as you are, stay as you are, be as you are." God doesn't. God just wants us to be comfortable. The problem with that is it's not biblical. There's proper conduct. There's a proper way in which we are to behave, and so that's what is being asserted here. Um, if you turn over to the book of Second Thessalonians, uh, the second footnoted here is Second uh, Thessalonians three. Now, it, it, it uh, mentions verse 6, verse 4, and verse 15. Um, so let's pick up in verse 6 and just read down through verse 14. It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. "'Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies.' Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now I want you to pay close attention to this. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The motive of discipline, the idea of discipline, we've talked about this a lot, is always a restoration. There's never an expelling that is, that's what we want to happen and that's what we hope remains. No, what we hope happens is that there is a restoration. That's the entire goal of a Bible church. And so... You don't count them as an enemy, even though walk, they walk disorderly. Now, this gets really tough, because as we're going to look in, into, into paragraph 13 here in a moment, you will see that they deal specifically with how these things are to be handled. But again, we see these examples of there is a government and a submission to these churches that is indeed happening. Uh, Paul also makes mention of, a, of this uh submission or a biblical support for a church government, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 9 through 15. Uh, we've, we've read this before, and of course this, uh, this is dealing with the sin that was in uh, the church at Corinth. It was the, um, for lack of a better term, uh, the sickening sin that was happening in the church. The people were puffed up about it. Uh, they were not mourning. They were not doing anything about it. But Paul writes to them and he admonishes them and tells them, here's what you should have done. And of course, in verse 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He says, I'm not talking about those that are outside of the church. I'm not talking about them. He said, if that was the case, we would go outside of the church and we would deal with them. But he says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without God judges. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, earlier in the chapter, Paul had made mention that if you were judging this properly, uh, in verse 5, he says, "...to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ." That is a removal. That's an excommunication. There are cases where uh, a person, and sadly, and we hope that never has to happen, is put out by the church. Now, that's going to be after a series of biblical steps that are taken before you reach that point, and that's really what paragraph 13 talks about. So we see that there is this principle. And then Hebrews 13, verse 17, we looked at this passage in our series in Hebrews, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Uh, submit to those who are following the Lord, those who are diligently guiding and guarding and will give an account for your soul. Okay? Pastors and elders will give an account for the souls of the people that were put under, um, their, under their flock. Nobody rushes headlong into being a pastor or an elder knowing that. Because they realize that there's an accountability before God himself. They are given account for you. Okay, notice again what he said. To not obey them is unprofitable for you. Okay, so God clearly says there is an extent, there is an expectation of this government. Now, when we look at paragraph 13 and tie these two thoughts together, you'll notice that there's a specific, uh, a specific situation being given here. Now, notice again; it says very clearly, "No church members upon any offense taken by them." So, the confession writers are pointing to a a a, a church member who is offended by someone else. Now, I guarantee you, in any church, there is going to be an offense. You are not going to be able to belong to a church for extended periods of time without somebody offending you. Sometimes those offenses are justified. Sometimes they're perceived. Sometimes there's a deception there. Sometimes it's a result of gossip. But there's going to be an offense. So church members, so this is, this is given us the context. No church member, upon an offense done to them, now watch the order, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at. In other words, here's the steps. That a church member who's been offended, right, by another person, after they have done what they're biblically required to do, which is what Matthew 18 teaches us, is to go to that person individually. Okay? Individually. Individually. You don't tell it to the church first, you go to them individually and talk to them about the offense that was given. Now the prayer is, is that upon that first meeting, the person who did the offending realizes, whether perceived or real, that brother, sister, I have offended you, and I'm acknowledging that sin, and I am going, I am repenting of that. Now at that point, if that happens, that's the end of it. That's it. You have solved the problem. At that point, there is no need for you to say, I want you to know I went to so-and-so, had an offense against someone, and I went to them, and I just want you to know all about the details of what happened. That's not necessary. Two brothers, sisters in Christ handled the problem. The forgiveness was granted because there was repentance offered. So the... Situation that confession writers were thinking about here was exactly that. That what should you do in a case where you have been offended? You've done everything you're supposed to do. Notice now again, so let's look, look over at Matthew 18 and let's follow the procedure because this is after everything's been done. Okay, so after you who've been offended, you have followed the discipline or followed the, the order that's in Matthew 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. It it cannot be any clearer than that. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Or that gaining there is this return or restoration of the brother. Now the relationship itself, the fellowship was broken, not talking about a person who lost his salvation, but you've restored him back. He's, he's back into the brethren. But if he will not hear thee. Okay, so not hearing can take on a lot of different forms. And by the way, there is no timetable put in between this first meeting of between, let's just use me, as me and you. There's no timetable given how long I give you to respond properly. It doesn't mean that if I go to you and you don't respond immediately, that I immediately turn around and do the next step. There may be some time that goes in between this. So what is the second step? If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. Okay, notice it's very clear, one or two more. And what do you do? That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This is so helpful and almost staggeringly helpful that what's happening will be confirmed and established by witnesses. So now this has become something that is, is, he, is, what is this here? What do we have? And so we follow the order. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them. So we see the pattern. You went alone, he didn't hear. You took, you took, you uh, took, one or two more, he wouldn't hear. Again, no timetable is put here. Tell it unto the church. Now it's become a, now it's become a public matter. Now it's become, here's a situation where here's, here's what's happening. Now again, remember, this is a church member who's been offended by another, by another member. Tell it unto the church, but if he neglect to hear the church... Let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. This is the final step, which is what's to expel or to put them outside of the church. Now, here's where our problem is as humans. We all have a timetable, and if you're the one who's been offended, we all have a timetable on how quickly all this should go down. Right? Am I just speaking honestly? We all have a timetable. Some of your timetable would be, if they don't hear me immediately, I'm immediately getting on my phone and I'm calling for one or two more to come with me the same day. We expect that it's gonna be handled according to our timetable. Now, notice what it says. So here's the, the confession again says, they've performed their duty required of them. So you're the one that's been offended. You've done everything you're supposed to do. You followed the order, you followed the biblical pattern. Here's what it says no church member should do. Ought to disturb any church order. So if you've done everything you're supposed to do, what are you supposed to do now? You're supposed to wait. Just don't disturb any church order. That means it doesn't come up in the middle of a worship service and say, listen, I was offended six months ago And it's not been dealt with. I demand an answer right now. You've disturbed church order in its corporate worship. It doesn't necessarily mean a service. You could disturb the order by simply implying that the church, you're not doing it right. You're not acting quickly enough. What is church order? Church order means even the structure of leadership, pastors and elders, how that structure goes down. So again, what this person who's been offended should be willing to do is to recognize that once I have followed all of the order of the Bible, I'm not to disturb the church order, or what becomes the next popular step to do is to absent themselves from the assembly of the church. So what do we do? We just get mad and we stop coming to services, we just stop going to church. I'm mad. I'm mad because someone offended me, and they will not. The church isn't dealing but it. I followed everything they told me to do. I even looked at Matthew 18. I followed it to a T, and they're not doing anything. So I'll get back at them, and I'll show them I'm angry. I'll just absent myself from the assemblies. And then it takes it one step further, and from the administration of the, any ordinances. I remove myself from the assembly. I remove myself from even the observance of the Lord's Supper, one of the two ordinances. I pull myself away from that. I, in a sense, I excommunicate myself. Only the church didn't excommunicate you. You removed yourself from the situation because you felt as if there was not order being done properly. Does everybody see that? That's what's at the heart here. Now, again, don't get the order wrong. That church member did everything right until they got to the point where they didn't trust that those who were the, in the recognized leadership of the church didn't act quickly enough or didn't respond appropriately in their mind. Notice it says that upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members... Doesn't matter who this is. This is not what you're supposed to do. You know, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. And I've, I have, in the years I've been a pastor, I've never been to figure it out. It doesn't matter what happens in our life. And it seems like even if we have a struggle personally, the first thing we do is we absent ourselves from the very thing we need the most. We say, I can't go to church today. Why in the world would you absent yourself from the place that you need and the thing you need the most, especially if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through a trial, if you were a member of that church and you truly believe that you were following, you have qualified pastors and elders. They're qualified. Now, again, they may not be the best preacher in the world. We're not talking about that. But if you truly believe that you wanted to be a part of that church and you're a member and you truly believe that those men are God-called and qualified, why would you distrust the system? Again, we're talking about humans here, folks. I guarantee you, you have bosses in your places of employment that don't always do right. Right, they don't always do it on your time, they don't always do it according to what your plan was. But the confession writers were so concerned about the reality of pulling yourself out of the fellowship of a local church over a matter that you handled properly but the problem is you failed to wait on the resolution. I've been in enough churches over my lifetime. I can, I can sometimes can even look now and you can see when someone has something against another person. You can see there's an offense there. And it just goes on. The church has a responsibility to deal with it. But here's what the confession writers had in mind upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon church administration. No, that's not what it says. Wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. Now, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, Ephesians is one of those letters that deals with so many things, and yet at the very heart of it, He puts Christ at the very top of all that he talks about. And in Ephesians 4, in verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, this word endeavoring is a really strong word. Uh, Endeavoring, it means that this is without any restraint in your effort. If you're endeavoring to do something, you're not restraining yourself in any way, shape, or form. You say, I'm doing everything to do what? To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sadly, what's becoming the most popular church activity is a church split. you're not helping anything, if there's not a major doctrinal error, but you're splitting because somebody failed to wait on Christ, you're causing irreparable harm to many people. I've seen it happen many times. To endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we see here that this restriction is that church members know what they should do. They simply should wait. Well, I'm going to rush my offended, and I'm going to put my offense to the top of the list. No, it says wait on Christ. This says that if I've done what I should have done, I don't. I give a, give the real life example. Somebody offends you this day, in between service. I hope it doesn't happen, but someone offends you. We've just learned the steps to take. Right. <laughs> We're all, under the account of, we're all accountable now to that. So if somebody says, and by the way, sometimes our offenses are so unintended. I'm telling you, most of the time when church members get offended at each other, it was an offense that was not intended. I can assure you of that. You get around people like us, and you start getting all sorts of personalities, and you start getting all sorts of sense of humor. And I'm telling you, some people just function differently. And some people say things and it's just who they are. They didn't mean to offend you. And I mean, people get mad and they stew and they get angry. And I get a letter later saying, we're gone. And I say, well, what happened? Well, so-and-so offended me during fellowship time. And I always say the same thing. Did you go to them by yourself and tell them what happened? Well, no. No then you left wrongly because you didn't even follow the order. Most times these offenses are not intentional, but there are offenses that happen. An offense is an offense. Now you as the one who did the offending have to be gracious enough to accept that even though you didn't mean it, except the fact that it came across that way. Now, that's not always easy, because what are we we tempted to do? We're tempted to defend our turf, and we're tempted to push back and say, well, I didn't mean that, and we say things we shouldn't say like, that's silly, you shouldn't feel that way. (laughs) That will never solve a problem. It actually just elevates it. So there's humility on both sides. The person who's doing the offending has to be humble, and the person going to that person has to be humble, And if Christians actually do Ephesians 4 and are lowly and meek, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and they endeavor without restraint to keep unity between themselves and that person, you're going to get a resolution. Now, there are extreme cases where a person will not hear anything because we can be that depraved and that sinful that we say, I'm not going to listen to anybody. And that's why there is an order as to what's going to happen. If you refuse to hear, we're going to follow church order of Matthew 18. One or two more are going to come to you who did the offending. You're going to stiffen your neck and you're going to say, I'm not moving off of this. People are going to come and tell it to the church. And then we're going to follow the order that it says. What that timetable looks like, that's the waiting part. I'm going to tell you something. I have watched over the years... Not just here, but in ministries and ministry I've been a part of. It's an amazing thing what happens, how many times God takes care of something if we would have just waited. Now, there are certain circumstances that are happening, and they're happening in some of our churches today. These are matters that have to be dealt with like yesterday. I mean, there are some so, such atrocities happening inside of churches that people are having to jump on that right away because we're talking about pushing criminal here, Right? I want you to understand that there is this responsibility that we have. This is not to be viewed as a reason why we should split or why we should leave. It's man and church members think that, don't I have a right to just leave if I'm offended? Or, You mean I don't just have the right to pick up and go and do whatever I want? Now, there are are exceptions to everything we talk about, of course. But the importance of Christ's directions in Matthew 18 for our conduct in the church can't be ignored, how we're to handle it. Those principles, again, Ephesians 4 shows us that. Colossians 3 makes mention very similarly to what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He wrote to the church at Colossae the same thing. But if you love your brother or sister in Christ, you're not going to leave a fellowship without the greatest sense of hesitation. Look, if I just look at church as another club I belong to, and if the club makes me mad, I just resign. You're losing the preciousness of your local church, and I don't mean to be cute. But if you treat your church membership like your golf club membership, and folks, that's what's happening. People don't even give any. They get offended one day, and they're gone. There's no following Matthew 18 at all. I'm convinced in those cases, and this might this might ruffle a few feathers. You were looking to leave already. Now again, there's an importance here. The precise words of the confession and what the Scripture is teaching us is that we wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. If you've joined that church believing that Christ through the Spirit is present, you're in a church that has qualified, clearly called pastors and elders, then even if a church has delayed or even what appears to be not done it everything right, what should you do about it? Pray. We forget about the importance of praying for those situations and allowing God to take care of it. When we get offended, what do we want? We want to be vindicated. We want to be proven that we were right. And even in the way we approach Matthew 18, we better be careful as to how we go to that other person. Taking all those principles of that we're I mean, not the the beams and the logs in our own eyes and calling out everything. We've got to be very careful about how we do that. But to just simply say, I just want no part of this anymore, is to suggest that Christ is not present in that church. God's not there. God's not doing what he's supposed to be. God's not working there, so I'm just going to go somewhere else. Now there are times, and it happens, and it has happened numerous times, where we quickly decide, I'm willing to submit and subject myself to that local church. Only to find out that I'm really not willing to do that. I'm not really willing to be subjected to it. It's not just about the privileges. And and again, we'll talk about that in another lesson. It's not about just privileges, it's actually more about the responsibilities. You know, it used to be that church privileges, and it kind of morphed into this over the years, as church privileges just meant you got to vote in anything important the church did. It's not the biblical standard exactly the way that we just cast ballots on things. But that was a privilege. But the privileges also include the abilities to be in fellowship, the ability to observe the the supper together, to, 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 to do life together. I don't look at anybody here and just say, these are just people I only want to see on Sundays and Wednesdays. Schedules and everything makes this difficult. But I don't just look at this and say, this is just kind of a club I come to every Sunday and Wednesday, and you people will listen to me. It's supposed to be so much more than that. But it also comes with responsibilities. I have responsibilities as a pastor elder. You have responsibilities. Again, if we're not careful, we make such a sharp distinction between the elders and the pastors and church members, and we think there's some great gulf fix between us. There really isn't. It's mutual accountability. So this is an important concept to think about. So next week, we'll get into the last two paragraphs, which actually deal with the communion of churches. Not just our church, but communion with other like-minded churches. How do we we handle that? What do we do? do? What does our fellowship look like? Do we have the same accountability to other churches, or is just a fellowship. So, we're going to talk a bit about that. So, if you want to read ahead uh, four, or, uh, paragraph 14 and 15 for next week, um, we'll probably just deal with paragraph 14, but you can always uh, read both of those paragraphs. Okay? Anybody have any questions or comments? We're going to finish.